Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today I'm joined by Trig Olson, president of Viking Strategies, LLC, a Washington, D.C.-based public affairs and political consulting firm. Trig has worked in dozens of countries across the world on behalf of pro-democratic forces against autocracies, against authoritarians. Trigvi and I have worked together many times over the last 15 years. We first met when we were working for then-Senator John McCain's presidential campaign in 2007. And so, Trigvi, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thanks, Reed. It's great to be here. So today we're going to talk about some of the tactics that we see from autocrats and some of the rules that you've developed as ways to deal with them. But before we get to that, I want to set the stage for how we even get here. And you've identified what you call the psychological pillars of political extremism, four different and distinct things that really make up political extremism psychologically. And I'll, I'll share them here. The first is psychological distress. The second is cognitive simplicity. The third is intolerance. And the fourth is overconfidence. And so I think we've seen all of these, certainly from Donald Trump personally, more times than any of us can count. But I think it's also metastasized into a broader would-be autocratic movement in the U.S. So how do these pillars in your mind manifest themselves and how do they relate to one another? Obviously, the first one, which is psychological distress, rests in events are occurring all the time. And when I would talk with various people about this, sometimes I would reference Billy Joel's song, We Didn't Start the Fire, right? When Billy Joel wrote that song, there were a lot of interviews afterwards where he said he wrote it because he had been talking to a younger person who was saying things have never been worse. So there's always things causing psychological distress for people and anxieties and uncertainty. And so when those are happening, that's not out of the norm. But what happens with political extremism is you have people that end up gravitating for certainty to cognitively simplistic answers. And you'll have politicians who will come along and provide them. And I think if we look at the Trump era, from the moment he descended the escalator, it was, we're going to build a wall. And when you know he got questioned, who's going to pay for it? He came up with another cognitively simplistic answer. And so when you get populists, either on the right or the left, who start providing these cognitively simplistic answers, you get people who start to buy into them. And you and I have talked about before, one of the tactics that gets used is basically seeding the field with a million different narratives to answer these concerns, to create certainty for people and an answer that they can glam onto. And then once that starts to happen, people who become politically extremist start to become overconfident that they had the simplistic answers in some cases to complex problems. And if you use immigration, for example, you know, that's a complex problem in the States. 
And so they start to believe that they have moral certainty and intellectual superiority in their simplistic answers to complex problems. And that leads to an intolerance. And once you get to the stage where people become overconfident in their view, the election was stolen, they become intolerant of anybody who doesn't share that opinion. They're almost enlightened. And once you reach that point, you have people who are political extremists. It's extremely hard to reverse that extremism, that overconfidence. It takes an event that causes cognitive dissonance where hey, maybe my worldview and maybe my overconfidence is wrong because I see events that are so outside the norm, like 1-6, that they start to question it. But short of something that causes that cognitive dissonance, it becomes really hard when people reach that stage of overconfidence and intolerance to roll back the extremism. I think that I was surprised and I continue to be surprised by how much resonance these theories do have, whether or not they're conspiracy theories, flat out lies have when every bit of human knowledge ever created is available at our fingertips on these phones. But people choose to ignore what is out there. And in fact, all this ability to communicate information is used not to illustrate the truth, but to provide avenues to further untruths to propagate lies. So I guess it doesn't matter if it's the 1500s or the 21st century, conspiracy, fantasy, all this other stuff can latch into the minds of people. And we should not think about it in the conveyance of information or the lack or availability of it. But the psychological piece of there are people who believe that their world is a changing beyond their control or B has already gone beyond their control. And when that happens, they're looking for something to glom onto. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, you and I have talked about this a lot over a long period of time, right? Any society has the individual level. We as individuals exist in various communities all the way up to we're Americans and then more broadly, we're part of the world. And then you have the bigger society that's comprised of individuals. And I think part of it is when Events happen that either impact all of society, COVID, or us individually, I lose my job, we search for answers. Why is this happening? And there's no monopoly on either the right or the left. It isn't ideological, right? Like after 9-11, there were all kinds of conspiracies and answers because the entire world saw a really troubling event. COVID, same thing, right? The, the entire world shut down. It's inherently natural if it's having a negative impact on individuals for some people to say, I want a simplistic answer to why this is happening to me in the context of the society or the groups that I'm part of. And inevitably, people are searching around for answers to things that they find troubling to create certainty in and around their life. And when you have politicians who come along and demagogue, and offer these simplistic answers. And what you notice is, you know, when we saw this in Trump's case a great deal, right? Like, again, we're going to build a wall and that's going to solve the immigration problem. And for you who lost your job, that's the reason. And this is going to be the solution, a wall. And of course, then in the course of context of a campaign, right, you had Rubio and other candidates who were like, well, who's going to pay for it? And then you have another simplistic answer. Well, Mexico will pay for the wall. 
obviously at each level is an incredibly complex set of dynamics. Mexico is never going to pay for the wall, but you've created an environment where you're giving those answers. And it really doesn't have anything to do with all the truth because they're not searching for complex answers. They're searching for simplistic answers. And when they reach that stage of overconfidence or intolerance, they're not even open to seeking anything that might conform to changing that unless it's something that's so big, again, that it shakes that foundation upon which it's built. So I want to move to that for a second, because you mentioned January 6th and that all of this stuff that we see, we hear, so many people we know experience online, whether it's Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube in particular, that stuff jumped the air gap on January 6th from a lot of people getting very angry at you know various people, various conditions, you know, ranting and raving that Donald Trump had had the election stolen from him to the analog world where people actually stormed the Capitol and people died. Do you believe that that event did scare some people back to reality, one and two? It feels to me like there was an opportunity there to bring reality back to the fore in the wake of that day. Nothing happened or whatever needed to happen didn't happen. And now we are where we are. To me, having worked around the world and having seen places where illegitimate elections happened and people took to the streets, you know, Belarus had elections in August. And as you know, Belarus has been a passion of mine, and I've worked with Belarusians for a long time who are fighting for freedom in incredibly brave ways. They came to the streets because Alexander Lukashenko literally had stolen an election. And in the United States, we had the Capitol being stormed. And one of the best examples is look at Lindsey Graham on the night when they got back to the Capitol and what he said. That was a guy who had been an apologist for Trump after having been a critic of Trump in the elections. And he was basically done. What I think happened, and I don't have quantitative data to show this, but I think you had a substantial part of people who voted for Trump within the Republican Party who were watching that and maybe had gone along even with Stop the Steal. And they're like, this is not me. I'm not a part of this. I'm done. Like Lindsey Graham said, I'm done. But then within a few days, within a period, you had a political calculation that was made. You know, if it was 70 percent of Republicans who said, I'm done with this. This is not right. This is not who I am. You had another 30% who were like, I'm sticking with it no matter what. And those are probably people who were radicalized. And I think you had people, you know, Kevin McCarthy and a whole bunch of leaders, maybe McConnell, well, McConnell too, who made a decision. If we address this, we aren't going to be viable in the game that we know and play, the win-win democratic election game. And so we have to ignore this. We have to pretend that this didn't happen. And you had elements who were directly involved who were like, we're going to have to start seeding the field. It was Antifa. They were mostly peaceful. And you saw this on Fox News. They were tourists. They were tourists. Right. And now you have a situation where that allowed that overconfidence and intolerance in those people who were having cognitive dissonance to say, yep, I wasn't part of it either. It was Antifa. It was a million different things. And it wasn't all that different from what happened with Stop the Steal, right? And that's the real tragedy of what's transpired, because one of the lessons that I've seen in 
working around the world against zero-sum autocratic forces is when you have a chance to finish him, you've got to finish him. I jokingly call it the karate kid theory. When you have the opportunity to sweep the leg, Johnny, you sweep the leg. Otherwise, Ralph Macchio is going to get up and do that swan thing and kick you in the jaw. And you're going to find yourself 20 years later running Cobra Kai on Netflix. Right? <laughs> so let me ask you two different pieces of a psychological question in your mind. The first is, what is the psychology of a Mitch McConnell right now and a Kevin McCarthy? To me, they're fellow travelers. They may not be white nationalists. They might not be national populists. They not, might not be in and of themselves authoritarians, but they're certainly going along to get along because they think that's their best path back to power. What causes that in the face of what they know to be wrong? You know, I think it's a political calculation because they think that the problem will go away. And that mistake has been made in a lot of places. I have a good friend who is a leader in the Belarusian opposition who, you know, when Lukashenko won, he, much like a lot of the Republican establishment, thought, well, we'll just manage this. Lukashenko's a collective farm boss. He's kind of a rube. Like, we can deal with this. And it was not, in fact, something they could deal with within democratic norms, because what ended up happening is he was playing a zero-sum game. So there was no win-win. And I think in the case of McCarthy and McConnell, I think to a large degree, they looked at this from the game they know, which is democratic, win-win, liberal democracy. And they thought, you know, in one of McConnell's closest days, Josh Holmes, who the Lincoln Project has talked about a lot, you know, said it in the Washington Post four days later. If you can have the rural working class coalition of Donald Trump without the insanity, you have a permanent governing coalition. What Josh is missing in that is that the insanity is the coalition, and it's a completely different game that's being played. It's a zero-sum game. They don't care on the illiberal side about that. They care about what the objective of all autocratic illiberal actors is, gaining and maintaining power on the Trump side. You know, you say they're playing checkers and meanwhile the other side is eating the pieces. That is really what's going on. It's two different games. Let me flip the question then to Democratic leaders in Washington and around the country. What are they missing? If there is one, what's their fundamental misapprehension about what's going on? Well, I think they're hoping that ultimately it returns to the game they know. And in some cases, they're playing that game, right? So uh, one of the things I watched with my hat on, not my domestic political hat, but having watched illiberalism and the zero-sum game and how you have to fight against it, you know, I think after the impeachment vote, you had McConnell giving a speech. And granted, McConnell might not have done the right thing on the impeachment vote from Nancy Pelosi's perspective, but he certainly said the right words in the speech afterwards in terms of calling out some truths. And immediately Pelosi was showing up at the press conference with the House impeachment team and going at McConnell for saying the right thing in one case and not casting a vote for impeachment. And as I watched that unfold, I was thinking, I understand her point, but one of the things in dealing with autocratic entities, when you have people who are from the side of the autocrat who are saying or doing the right thing, even if you loathe them, even if that's the only thing you share in common, if they're saying and doing the right thing, even if it's not 100% of the right thing, at a minimum, you say nothing. And I think the mistake the Democrats have been making to a large degree is 
they're tending to pile on when people within the Republican side are standing up. And, you know, one of the rules, I call it the Stalin rule, and I used to say this all the time to people fighting against some of the worst autocrats in the world, is, you know, during World War II, Churchill and Roosevelt made a decision to be in an alliance with Joseph Stalin. They shared nothing in common beyond the fact that fascism had to be fought. And in this game, if you're a Democrat and you share nothing with Liz Cheney, you're still on the same team and you have to do everything you can to help them survive and thrive. And sometimes that means keeping your mouth shut. Well, as we know in American politics, that's very difficult to do. And certainly I'm guilty of that, too. So you sort of led into something that I want to talk about, too. So we've talked about the psychology of the autocrat. Now I want to talk about the tactics that autocratic movements and autocrats themselves utilize. And so you've compiled this list based on your experience, obviously, and the research. So here's what they are. First is the big ideas and the big lies. Second is marginalization. Third is dependency. Fourth is disinformation and malinformation. Fifth is divide and conquer. And lastly are threats, repression, and violence. And again, I think we've seen all of these things. So talk to me about how these things start to fit together, starting with, you know, the big lie is not a new phenomenon. Maybe it's new to us. Maybe it's not. I mean, our leaders have lied to us before, Vietnam being a great example. So talk to us about how autocratic movements utilize these things to consolidate their own power and then utilize them against their opponents. You know, I've seen around the world, almost every autocrat has some set of big ideas. And a great example of this is like Soviets and five-year plans, right? Like the five-year plans weren't worth anything. They were based on just nothing, but they were something that they could use to try and rally around and have as a basis for addressing, in essence, you know, some of the distress that people were feeling is a simplistic answer. You know, we don't have enough wheat. What's the answer? The five-year plan. We don't have enough jobs. The five-year plan. Elevators don't work. And anybody who went, you know, to the former Soviet Union, I know your dad did a lot of that, right? Like it, getting in an elevator was a scary experience. They could build nuclear weapons and missiles to wipe us out, but they couldn't build an elevator to get you to the second floor without having you be stuck. So the big ideas and big lies, you know, they have a couple of pieces to them. One is they're about putting things forward that can be the catch-all answer to every psychological distress and uncertainty that people are facing. And they're big lies because they're not based on anything true. We saw that with, you know, Stop the Steal. I'm really concerned about, you know, Joe Biden becoming president, America becoming a socialist country, right? What's the answer to that? Well, they must have stolen it. And the other thing is, you know, oftentimes these big lies are told over an extended period of time. And, you know, Stop the Steal, you and I have talked about this in the past, right? You know, in 2008, it was ACORN. In 2010, it was voting machines changing. Like this narrative has been going on. And my mom, who's 85 years old, will tell you that Lyndon Johnson stole Texas and Mayor Daley dumped ballots in the river to stop Nixon in 60. But the big lies and the big ideas, they're about addressing that, you know, the psychological distresses out there. But the other piece of that is from an autocratic perspective, you know, it's a question, who's willing to repeat them or remain silent about them? Because that demonstrates loyalty. So that really is the role that big lies and big ideas play in this. So, for example, nine months from now or so, primary elections will start in states and districts across the country. 
who will repeat the big lie that Donald Trump actually won the 2020 election, who will not deny that fact when asked about it on the campaign trail. And the people that say Donald Trump actually won will have what I believe will be a market advantage in a Republican primary next year, whether or not it's the state house district or a Republican house district or a Senate race. And those who don't want to say it out loud will go out of their way to say anything about it would be my guess. For sure. I mean, you and I have been involved in enough Republican campaigns in a prior life that if you were advising somebody who is running for office, you would have a little bit of a conundrum on your hands. And we know a lot of consultants on the Republican side who probably aren't comfortable with what's gone on. In fact, we know they are. But the reality is, is that their job also is to try and get people through a primary, right? And you are incredibly exposed if 60%, which is what most polls show, that 60% of Republicans believe that the election was stolen. And that percentage is even higher of those who are most likely to vote in a primary. So at a minimum, you're going to say, don't say anything. And more likely than not, you're going to tell them, massage it or give dog whistles to it or just come out and say it. And that's the race to the bottom. I mean, you know, Mark Twain, a lie can travel a lot further than the truth. So yeah, it's a real problem. And then I would also say one of the things that is also happening, and I've been spending time looking at it, and you and I have talked about this, is there is those four pieces that cause people to become extremists have really become the accent and the language of Republicans, right? There is a whole lot of overconfidence and intolerance that has arisen during the Trump era. And you see it in ways like locker up or socialist country or extremists, whatever. So let's go to the next piece in your tactics, and that's dependency. So talk to me about what that is. Dependency is ultimately about creating a structure where you're dependent upon the illiberal forces and sort of this vertical power structure that they all use for professional or financial or whatever it is that can be used as a mechanism for control. And the Republican Party is a classic autocratic vertical. And, you know, in 2018, and you and I were having this conversation in 2019, you know, when I would go into countries that have autocratic leaders, one of the things that I would try and do is map out what does the vertical power structure look at like, so you can kind of try and figure out where are their vulnerabilities in it. Dependency in the Republican Party, if you're a Republican consultant and you are not loyal to Trump, you tweet something unfavorable about Trump, you're not going to get that contract. If you're a Liz Cheney and you're in leadership and your last name's Cheney, for God's sakes, and you speak the truth about one sixth that's inconvenient, you're going to get removed. That's you know probably not good for your career. If you're somebody who voted for impeachment, you're going to get primaried. And Donald Trump might come in and raise money and work against you. So you have this whole level of dependency. And then that moves into marginalization, right? Like if you speak out, you're marginalized. And one of the best examples of that, I mean, Ted Cruz is a case study in many things, probably. <laughs> bad beards being one of them. Bad beards, bad decisions, bad ethics, bad everything. Right. You know, look at Ted Cruz, right? He's lying Ted raises the Bible high and, oh, he lies, right? So that's Ted Cruz 
And then when Ted Cruz starts doing what Donald Trump wants, and he's got a tough general against Beto O'Rourke that he can lose, then suddenly he's praising Trump. And now he's no longer Lion Ted, he's beautiful Texas Ted. And now that he's gone all in, he's getting the dinner in Mar-a-Lago and the tweet, like he's doing great. That's how the two are used. They're intersynced. If you are doing what they want and you're dependent upon them, then you're beautiful, Ted. If you're not, you're marginalized and you're, you're lying, Ted. And we've seen that over and over and over again. And one of the things that when I talk to people about these things, they're like, well, you're being so harsh on the Republicans. It isn't that there isn't some of this that goes on on the left and the Democrat side. but Well, it is politics after all, right? It is politics. But the other difference is, and this is something people need to think about, if you have a conversation with Democrats about who are leaders in the Democrat Party, you get them fighting about whether Kamala Harris is to the left of Nancy Pelosi. It isn't clear cut. The other thing that you see in the Republican side that's classic dependency and tactics and illiberalism is you have all these figures, Mark Levin, Matt Lap, like people we know, who appease Trump and they're seen as leaders in the party, Ben Shapiro, right? And that in and of itself, they're only leaders, not because of any constituency they have beyond Donald J. Trump and the people around him. And that's no different, quite frankly, like if you were to have a conversation about Russia, Dmitry Paskev, who's his communications guy, is seen as a leader in Russia. Well, he's a leader in Russia because he's close to Putin. Like all these oligarchs who are seen as powerful in Russia and running Russia, they're not members of parliament. They're not speaker of the house or vice president, right? It's just about proximity to the leader. So that's where dependency comes in, right? Like you're dependent upon that, your stature, your TV appearances, all those things. You know, the, a lot of the people you just mentioned, and we should add, certainly, I think, Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram to the top of that list, too, which is they enjoy an outsized level of influence and authority and power within the Republican Party. But their contribution to the effort is misinformation, malinformation and lies, you know, on a regular basis. They have taken what might have once been called Fox News, you know, fair and balanced is now just flat out propaganda. There is no truth left there to your point about critical race theory or the one person that had one thing happen to them. And that shows that, you know, we're destined to be, you know, the American Soviet Socialist Republic in two years or whatever. So talk to me about them and how it got so far so fast. How does this happen? It happens in part because of silence, people unwilling to speak up. It happens because immediate political self-interest is viewed as, okay, well, I'll just be quiet or I'll compromise or he can't win or maybe if I ignore it, it will go away. And it happens because it takes courage. You have to risk something. I'm speaking to the choir, right, Reed, because obviously the Lincoln Project guys have, have taken a beating for standing up. Now, the upside of that is They've also inspired how many million people to say, wow, these guys are brave. They're standing up. It takes courage because you're risking a lot. When I would travel to places to train people on youth mobilization and nonviolent tactics, and it happened Burma, Venezuela, Russians, Ukrainians, Serbians, Iranians, I mean, all of them, inevitably somebody would come up to me 
And I think a lot about one young girl, she was in high school in Ukraine, who came up to me and she said, you're so brave to come here and teach us. And I thanked her and smiled and I said, you know, you're really brave. You're a hero to me that you're here. After she walked away, and this would happen everywhere, I would think to myself, I'm not brave. I get to go home. And so, you know, when I'd start my presentation, I would look around the room and I'd think, if this happened in my country, would I be one of these brave people coming to try and learn how to make a difference, knowing that I'm risking my place in school, knowing that I might be risking my job, knowing that I might be risking getting arrested, beaten? In some cases, like my dear friend Boris Nemtsov killed in front of the Kremlin for something unknown, democracy in Russia. And that thought would always pass fast because I thought that's never going to happen here. And I think in some of those places, they didn't believe it could happen either. We call that the rule of the failure of imagination is that the thing that you can't imagine is the thing you end up getting because you couldn't believe it happened. You know, I talk about my friend Boris Nemtsov, and Boris was the kind of guy who, if you met Boris for 10 minutes, you were excited about the prospect that Russia could become a fully functioning democracy. And he was working all across Ukraine and Belarus and Georgia and all these places. And it was contagious, his optimism in the face of really not good. You know, it's interesting to me because when Liz Cheney went to the floor and gave her speech where she talked about why she was doing what she was doing, the first person she talked about was Boris Nemtsov too and meeting Boris Nemtsov really early on. And I think, you know, to some degree we've been spoiled because like me standing in front of all of these groups, I would think this can never happen, but it can happen. Well, look, I mean, I would say this is our, you know, our definition of courage because some people do say that and it is flattering and humbling and I can't believe that anybody would ever say it. You know, we tend to say courage is running out of the landing craft when the guy in front of you just got shot, right? Like that's courage. What we do is make TV commercials, do podcasts, do television, that kind of stuff because of something that we all ultimately believe in and we believe it's good for the country. But let me talk about that because I want to skip ahead to threats, repression and violence because We've certainly, I can't speak for you, but I know all of us and of our own way have received threats. And so that's not surprising given who we're up against. But, you know, some of these members of Congress said, I can't vote against Trump because I'm afraid for my life. One, do you believe that they actually believe that? And two, if so, I mean, I don't even know how to begin with that because, I mean, I remember doing a thing at a college more than 10 years ago and the guy said, what happens when you run out of words? And I said, when we run out of words, the violent acts start. And my fear is, talking to a friend of ours from Egypt, is the violence has returned. It's a very real part of our world now, even if it doesn't appear to be. Our mutual friend, one of the points he made, and you know, when I watched, I was in Lithuania on 1-6, watching the Capitol riots, and I think we were connected indirectly on a chat. But as soon as I heard Trump utter the words, I was like, oh, my God, this is what's going to happen. They're going to go to the Capitol. And the law of mobs is going to take over. They're going to storm it. And, you know, and as our friend from Egypt said, it normalized violence in our politics. And norms matter greatly in democracies and in any society. And that is the really troubling part. As it relates to threats, repression, and violence, you know, threats and repression and to a degree on 1-6 violence have become norms. And sometimes they're in little ways. People have asked me about, you know, Mike Pence and why was the mob chanting, hang Mike Pence? And, you know, autocrats and illiberal actors 
it's all about making examples. And Mike Pence was the perfect foil, right, for Trump in the lead up to it to channel the anger at because no one had been more loyal than Mike Pence. And here's the thing that kind of makes me chuckle sometimes with people in the Republican Party. The thing about autocrats is the people who usually have threats, repression, and violence used against them are the ones who appease and are loyal and then turn and start speaking the truth. And that was Mike Pence. Trump, by using Mike Pence, who had been more loyal, he'd stand and look with his puppy dog eyes at Donald Trump. If Donald Trump was willing to sacrifice Mike Pence, what would he have been willing to do to Rand Paul or Mitch McConnell or Kevin Mitt McCarthy Romney. or Mitt Romney? Well, not even Mitt Romney or Liz Cheney, right? Like, Because they're the enemies. I mean, I actually think had that mob gotten their hands on certainly an AOC or a Nancy Pelosi, it would have been ugly or Mitt Romney or Liz Cheney. But the truth of the matter is, is that had they gotten their hands on Mitch McConnell or even Josh Hawley or Ted Cruz, they wouldn't have cared because the truth of the matter is no one had been more loyal than Mike Pence. And Donald Trump was basically saying Mike Pence and all of them deserve to be, you know, as Giuliani said, trial by combat. And that precedent is terrifying because we've seen that game all over the place. So, well, listen, I mean, we've talked about some pretty dark stuff and you've lived this up close and personal, a lot of different places. And you and I have known each other now darn near 15 years. So let's turn to like how we beat these guys. So I've got here a, a you know, it's basically like a letterman's top 10 list, but it's Olson's 10 rules for dealing with autocrats and illiberal actors. So I'm just going to read through these and then we can talk about them. The first is something we started with, which is always speak truth to power. The second is understand that illiberal actors must live in the moment. The past presents truths. And the future represents change and is therefore uncertain. Third is mock the big lies with humor. Number four is attack disinformation and conspiracy theories before they can grow. And I really want to spend some time on that one. Five is marginalized through consequences. And we've seen some of that. Six is make them dependent. Seven is the illiberal actor's enemy is your ally. That's something we talked about. That Stalin rule, right? Which is people who otherwise have nothing in common. If they have a common opponent, they got to work together. Number eight is there is no compromise or any concession with the illiberal actor. And any compromise on the illiberal actor's part is strategic. Number nine, that the game is zero sum. There's going to be one winner and one loser, and that's how it's going to be. And number 10, that your only potential outcomes are to surrender to the autocrat or beat the autocrat. So let's talk about that. We don't have to go through them one by one, but, you know, always speaking truth to power. And this seems to be one that we don't have an issue with. And I think a lot of our allies in this pro-democracy space don't have a lot of issues with. But it does seem to be a problem for Republicans, people like Rob Portman, who should have no issue speaking out against this, who should have no trouble speaking truth to power, but somehow can't do it. So talk to me about how we put that into action. Portman's a great example of that. I think Pat Toomey's an example of that. There's a lot of these guys they don't have anything really at stake in the sense politically, right? Because they're stepping down. I don't understand it fully. But in terms of speaking truth to power, it isn't words as much as actions at times too. So you need to call out if people are appeasing. You need to speak the truth to power. But when I talk about speaking truth to power, I don't necessarily mean within the game that we know. I'm talking about the bigger picture of the game that we're forced to play and the consequences and what's at stake. So this isn't 
speaking truth to power about filibusters as it relates to you know voting rights acts or things like that it's the much bigger truths about what those things mean and the actions of them and i think you and i have talked about this in the past and since we had this platform i mean if you're rob portman pat toomey maybe mitt romney and others they have actions they could take that would make the autocrat dependent on them, which is another one of the rules, right? If the three of them or four of them, Susan Collins, Murkowski, they were to march into Mitch McConnell's office tomorrow or march to a podium and say, you know what? We are not going to do this anymore. We're going to call them as we see them. That would change the entire dynamic because then that vertical and those who are appeasing would become dependent upon them by speaking the truths. Same is true in the House, right? Like the 10 members who voted for impeachment, they're going to get primaried anyway. They're already getting pummeled and they're still having to sit in a caucus with Marjorie Taylor Greene. They could easily come out and say, we're not doing this anymore. Now, that gets to another point, though. Because they would be playing not the game we know, but the game that we're forced to play, there would be an onus on the Democrats on the House side, for example, if the 10 of them did it and McCarthy said, fine, you're not going to be on committees, you just sit here, for Nancy Pelosi to step up and say, okay, we'll give you committee assignments as independents. That's where, even if you have nothing but loath, if they're on your same team, you got to keep them afloat, right? So all these kind of work together. But that's what I'm talking about with truth to power and how they sort of intersect with each other. Well, and in other places, though, in, in other countries that typically have parliamentary systems, the conservatives and the Greens have gotten together to form a coalition to govern, and it provides an outlet. And it's also, well, I need something and you need something. And maybe the conservatives and the Greens don't agree on much, but they know that they don't want those other guys and gals in power. And so how do you convince a Democratic leadership in the House or Senate that if those members did choose to do that, which I think is still a far cry from happening, this is what you have to do. And you're going to have to take the slings and arrows from your most progressive members while you do it. I think to some degree, you know, Ann Applebaum makes the point a number of times. Autocracy is great if you're on the side of the autocracy and you're in the inner circle, but it isn't so great for everybody who is, right? <laughs> Which is almost everybody. Right. And those are really the stakes that are at play. So how do you convince these people to do that? They have to have courage too. Because they're going to have forces on the left who would say, oh, well, you know, we don't agree with Liz Cheney on anything. And to some degree, they might be as extremist as the other side. There's just a lot less of them, right? So you have to have team democracy saying we're going to put the common good ahead of our individual interests because we're not playing a game that's win-win. You know, you make the point about other places with parliamentary democracies, Schmidt and I years ago. We're doing some stuff with Germans, and we have some really good friends who are in the CDU, Merkel's world. We were over there, and they ended up with a coalition that was the Social Democrats and the, you know, the CSU. And Merkel was the leader, and that's the coalition that they had to build to keep their link and some of their extremist parties out. We now have, in many ways in the U.S., a multi-pointed system of we might have four in essence, parties if we were a European parliamentary system, but we've got a two-part system that's set up on two parties. We have to have people start thinking outside the box a little bit about how they see it and recognize that it's a completely different game 
and that they may have to organize themselves in some different ways, making some decisions and doing some things that normally wouldn't happen in normal times. But I can tell you, when the capital is being stormed, when you have a summer where part of America feels so little power over what the police is doing to people like them, that they feel like they have to go out in you know, my hometown of Minneapolis, where we've known that problem existed for a long time, and it's a real grievance, but they feel they have so little recourse, it's not normal times. Right. I want to move on to understanding that the liberal actors must live in the moment. I know that Applebaum talks about this in her book. Timothy Snyder has talked about it in his book, and, and I know that you mentioned it too. And I think the biggest part of this, and I saw a quote today on Twitter somewhere that said, Republicans are scared to death of a 1-6 commission, but they're more scared to death of Pelosi appointing a select committee on it because they know that a select committee in the U.S. House will be absolutely devastating for them and that they must continue to deny or ignore what happened on January 6th because they know no voter likes that. And it is such a psychic blow to what Americans believe their country is. So talk to me a little bit about how that also manifests itself, you know, looking forward. And I think that's the other part, too, is Trump. Think about it with COVID. One day it will magically disappear like a miracle. It will magically disappear. As you said, the future is in flux. If you have a big problem and you try and take action against it and you fail, then you're now responsible for it. What are some other examples you see of that and how do we hold them to account for it? Well, autocratic actors live in the moment in large part because what their objective is, right? It's to gain and maintain power. And the past creates inconvenient truths. And I think one of the things the Lincoln Project excelled at with COVID, for example, was reminding people and keeping it top of conscience that, you know, Donald Trump was saying it will magically disappear and it didn't magically disappear. It got worse. And we ended up with 600,000 dead Americans. But you know, as far as their objective is concerned, consequences down the line can be dealt with by living in the moment when you get to the moment. So I think as we move forward, one of the essential things that has to happen, and this gets to the 1-6 commission, right? They don't want to deal in the past because that's going to raise a whole bunch of inconvenient truths. And for Republicans, that's a real problem even Republicans who are maybe more, you know, self-interested, not loyal to Trump, it's going to create problems because it's going to force them to have an honest conversation about these truths and what transpired and the culpability of some people. Kevin McCarthy having to answer the question, which he refuses to answer it when Chris Wallace asked him it, and one that he changed, they don't want that because there are a lot of Republicans who are going to be troubled by that answer. And that, in the game that they're used to playing, presents huge electoral problems for them. Can you imagine a Republican member of Congress sitting at a witness table before a select committee on January 6th and being asked about their involvement? And what do they do? They will almost certainly hide behind their Fifth Amendment right, <laughs> right. to self-incrimination. Right? Rick Scott's really experienced at that. So. Right. And so it'll be interesting that if and when, and I hope and plead that anybody who has connections to Speaker Pelosi, I ask her desperately to start this process and get it going, is that you'll probably see a lot of that. And that will be, while it is not admi an admission of guilt, it's certainly an admission in the eyes of public opinion that you don't want to talk about something and that you don't want to talk about something because you think you did something wrong. 
that you might be held accountable for it. Yeah. I mean, you know, within the game that we're playing, and this is where the speed, the truth, the power thing, if Nancy Pelosi wanted to be really bold and they go the select committee route, they should think about making Adam Kinzinger chairman of that, right? Like that would be a bold move and it would be different. And it would be saying to a whole swap, like Nancy Pelosi would do herself a favor because there's a lot of people in the center who would be like, wow, that's bold. That's different. Well, and in purely DC politics too, it would give her the opportunity to say, this isn't a Democratic thing. This is a Republican leading this charge. Right. Now, the downside in the game we know is Adam Kinzinger would be bigger than you two post-Joshua tree, right? <laughs> so you're totally right. Like the reality is they could wash their hands of it. This would not be Benghazi. If you do that and you make it truly bipartisan, having the courage to do that in the game we play would be valuable. And quite frankly, can you imagine Adam Kinzinger grilling Kevin McCarthy? Man, he'd be merciless. It would be great. I think it's a fabulous idea. So I want to move ahead and trigger I think this is a tough one for us both professionally and personally, which is there is no compromise with these people. And any concession by the illiberals is tactical or strategic in nature. That's a line in the sand. That's a line in the sand that I think a lot of certainly our friends in Washington aren't comfortable with, right? Because they want to be able to move where they want to move. But that's something we've said. You cannot sit at a table that includes Donald Trump, Mitch McConnell, the Auschwitz guy, Richard Uline, Steve Schwartzman, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Like you can't sit at a table with them. And so how do we convince you know, people are like, you know what? It would just be better if we all got along. They're not bad people. Guys, they're our friends. They're stuck in a system they can't get out of. How do you find the wherewithal to say, I understand who they are. I know we've known these people for 20 years. They've made a choice. We've made a choice. And until this fight is over, we're on different sides. I mean, it's hard to do, right? Because it takes a lot of courage for them to be willing to do that. At some point, these guys, quote, Lady Macbeth, they're going to have to screw their courage to the sticking place, or you have to conclude that, hey, maybe they're okay with it. And we know, because we know these people, they're really not okay with it. They don't like constricting themselves, but they're afraid of what the consequences are of doing that. And, you know, at some point, they need to think about the sacrifices of all who came before them who are sacrificing so much more their entire future. And sometimes democracy requires that. But that's, you know, that's a hard place to be. I know that there are, and I'm sure you have the same thing, there are any number of friends and acquaintances, two of my dearest friends, you know, who I don't speak to anymore. They chose a path that I thought I understood at first, and then I realized that there is no limit to the compromise that will be asked of you. And there was no limit to the compromise they were willing to accept. You know, some of it was straight political. I can't believe you took on this person. I can't believe you took on that person. That person's a client of mine. You're nothing but a liberal now. And I thought that that was the most ridiculous, like, insult. I'm like, that's what you got? I'm a liberal now? I mean, come on. But it's not an easy place to be because you have to say it would be much easier to get the Christmas card. It would be much easier to go back to Washington, D.C. and go to the dinner party, to go to the bar and see people you haven't seen in a long time and say it's hail fellow well met. None of this stuff really matters. But I don't think that's where we are anymore. You know, one of the things that I would tell people when I was working with them in various places around the globe, there's sort of two categories. And I've said this to you guys before, too. There's the irredeemables who are truly 
part of the vertical and they're going to go down to the end. Right. Jason Miller, Ivanka, Stephen Miller. Don Jr., Rudy. Right. Those guys, you know, they've passed what I call the Hodorkovsky rule. All these guys get to a point where something happens and there's no going back. They can't give up power. They can't give up the vertical because they will have to account for those truths that exist. And, you know, Putin could no longer give up power once he put Hodorkovsky in jail because he would be held accountable for what happened with Hodorkovsky and the people immediately around him. That's true with Trump too, right? Like the people who are involved directly in 1-6, there's no going back for them. There's another class of people though, you know, that still have the opportunity to do the right thing, even if they've appeased, even if they've been around the edges of it they can still do the right thing. And I think that's what we're talking about to a degree, right? If Lindsey Graham decided to step up tomorrow and say, you know what, I'm on the board of the International Republican Institute, and I've seen this stuff around the world, and I've talked, and I guess I haven't really been living it in the United States, he potentially could redeem himself on some level. But the problem is not going to go away. You know, to get back to truth to power in the context of what we face, you know, it can start with something simple. You go to a Lincoln Day dinner and somebody comes up to you or you go home to your mother and they say, you know, the election was stolen. And you say, no, that's not true. That's speaking truth to power, right? Because they're the people who are voting in primaries. But you lose friends over that, as you've said. That's one of the risks. There's a personal risk. And that, to some degree, gets to you know, one of the things that illiberal actors do is they try and infuse themselves in every element of society, the community level, the cultural level, the organizational level. We're seeing that, right? Like, why is this whole woke corporation thing going on? They're basically trying to say to companies, stay out of politics. Mitch McConnell literally said that, and it sounded like Vladimir Putin. And Ted Cruz said, Hey, Coca-Cola, you know, maybe we won't ignore your $12 billion in back taxes anymore. Tax fraud and tax evasion is always a big, a big one for the bad guys who are trying to get back at somebody. And so, yeah, I think that's right. Think about that tactically. What is that? Threats, repression, and violence, right? And you're dependent on us. On some level, I always chuckle, right? I grew up playing ice hockey, as you know, and still play occasionally. And, you know, in Russia, for example, Ice hockey is the game, right? It's a central part of the Russian culture. And you have Vladimir Putin going out and playing against the Olympic team and scoring nine goals against world-class hockey players. And that poor goalie, he's just like, oh, what a great shot, right. Mr. President. What's, you got me again. <laughs> right. You got me again. And the thing about that is, is that what's he doing with that? Well, he's showing he's dominant and that he can do it. But even more than that, he's trying to say, I am the culture. They want to place themselves in the center of the culture. And Donald Trump did that all the time, right? Like, what was the whole thing? His example of that is, you know, I'm the billionaire guy who never got to be an NFL owner, so I'm going to inject myself into the NFL, right? And now you've got people trying to do that with companies, when their employees are the ones who are speaking out, saying, we're not going to stand for this. And great change in the United States, to some degree, comes from the bottom up. I mean, look at marriage equality, right? You know, it started with people and it went into their families. I have, you know, somebody in my family who's gay and they're in a committed partnership and it isn't fair. And then it worked into organizations and United Airlines ultimately just says, we're going to do this. We're going to give these benefits. And it creates space and it works bottom up. Well, autocratic entities work top down. 
And that's one of the things that's important, you know, for the people who are in senior positions and companies who are listening to this, who are fans of what we're doing, and they're saying, well, what can I do? You know, one of the things that you can do is build a consensus within your company that, you know, you're going to show up each day and you're going to stand beyond profit, which you should stand for. You're going to stand for these values and you're not going to let politicians try and drive into you with threats and repression and violence. Absolutely. Listen, I mean, I think that if there's anything I can leave our listeners with, it's this. I never really thought about when Franklin Roosevelt said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. I spent a lot of time thinking about this recently. One is that fear starts as a true reaction to something bad that might happen. I can't do X because Y might happen. And then it becomes an excuse. Well, I'm not going to do X because if I do X, what if Y happens? And then it becomes belief. I can't do X because Y will happen, as opposed to, well, no one knows the given outcome of a given action, especially subjective ones. And so if Coca-Cola says, we're going to stand up for voting rights in Georgia because it's the right thing to do, they should do that because it's the right thing to do. What will the reaction be? You might piss off Ted Cruz. Are you going to lose one Coca-Cola drinker? No, you're probably not. Are you going to lose one, you know, I don't know, the litany of companies that Coca-Cola owns, but is one person not going to pick up your product at the Walmart because you did this? The answer is no. You know why? One, because you're an icon. And two, because nobody wants to drink Pepsi. And so this, this idea of, well, I can't do this because this other bad thing might happen to me, we're sort of in state of that now, certainly in our politics, but we're not yet there with our people. And I think that the more people we can get to say, this is something I can do, something I should do, and damn the torpedoes, let's go. If we can marshal those people, and it doesn't have to be 100 million, it can be 10 million. And if we do that in the next 18 months, then you know what? We'll get back to some sort of democracy. It won't be in November of 2022. It might not be till January of 2025 or maybe January of 2027, but at least we'll be back on that path. 2022 is a defining moment for the United States. And it's one that is huge in terms of stakes. And then the next step in that is 2024. And I say to people all the time, the question you have to ask yourself, you know, there's all these things happening, events happening, there's legislation being proposed, etc. The question you have to ask yourself is, with any of these, to want to know whether it's illiberal and autocratic and dangerous or whether it's good for our country, is does this increase people's fear who would be against it, the motives and designs of those who are proposing it, or does it increase their faith in those people's commitment to democracy and what has made this country the exceptional nation and the world's indispensable nation? And you know, when I think about why do I stand up, and you know that I've always been somebody to kind of stay in the back of the room. Ultimately, for you and I, who both have young daughters, this isn't just about what kind of country we want them to grow up in, but it's so much bigger than that. Because a world without America as the leader of the win-win liberal democratic world is a zero-sum world 
that I don't think we want them living in. It's an incredibly dangerous world. Well, that is for damn sure. All right, well, listen, Trigby, thank you for taking so much time today to give us a supersized episode and let us crawl inside your brain for a little while. Before we go, where can folks find you on social media? On Twitter, it's at Trigvi Olson, T-R-Y-G-V-E Olson, O-L-S-O-N. And as always, everybody, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. Thank you all for listening. And until then, we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our efforts to join our mailing list and subscribe to our newsletter, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode. Thank you.